Sorry about that. <laughs> had something I had to do right quick. All right. Anyway, we got a tight little window there to get things ready for the message. But anyway, all right, I got to take a breath. I'm going to take a breath because I just ran about 20 feet. <laughs> Which is actually appropriate because uh, Paul's going to start with a running analogy here at the beginning in Galatians chapter 5. You can go ahead and start heading there. I do want to add on to um, what Jess mentioned earlier. And I don't usually, I don't, not, the, not, the, uh, not what I said last week, not that thing. That's done. We're good. We're moving on. Um, no, but last week, so I don't usually kind of talk about messages this way or like promote them or whatever. But I got more discussion and comments this week from the message last week than any message I have ever preached by far. I mean, it's not even close. I had, I had at least, and this is, I'm, this is not, I'm not, you know, like building myself up in any way here. Um, but I had at least 10 people tell me it was the best message that they'd ever heard or I'd never heard me preach. And when I got home last week after church, um, and sat down and kind of settled, I looked at Jess and I sat down, we, you know, when we sitting in the living room and I looked at her and I said, listen, if, if in 15 plus years of ministry that, that I've been doing, if there was one message I would want every Christian to listen to in our area, that's the one. That's the one because there are so many people, there are so many people that are hurt and bound up in legalism, Christian legalism, and they don't even know that's what it is or that's why it's doing it to them. And that there are so many people around us that are wrapped up in that without realizing it or have been hurt by it, not realizing that's what it is. They thought they were hurt by God or they thought they were hurt by Jesus and they weren't. They were hurt by a, a distortion of what is true. That happens so much that I just wish, it's, and it's not about me or how I preached it or anything. It's the actual concept itself. And that is so transformative for us as believers as we've been going through the book of Galatians, we've taken a ton of time, like 12 weeks of basically foundation setting. Here's what the truth is. Here are what the facts are. This is how God works. This is how salvation and justification before him work. And we've just been talking about that over and over and over again. And at times it felt a little monotonous to me. I'm like, okay, this week we're preaching on the same thing we preached on last week, you know? But that's important because that's all part of the, I keep thinking of a building being built. It's all part of the concrete being poured, the footings being poured, the, the, the concrete curing and, and getting as strong as it needs to be to then build on top. And last week we talked about what is the payoff for this? Why does this matter so much? Why is it so important that this foundation be like it is? And I think we all saw together that the payoff is huge, that it matters deeply and greatly. And so as we're building on top of this foundation, so I just want to encourage you, if you missed that one last week, I really would like for you uh, to, if, even if you don't normally go back and listen to messages that you missed, I really want to encourage you to go back and, and listen to that one. Um, because we talked about what actually happens as a result of legalism versus what actually happens as a result of grace and the difference that that makes. And it, it is huge. And so we will talk a little bit more about that um, today. But because I was so into the message last week, I went a little long. Uh, I don't know if you noticed. You may not have noticed. I know you don't care at all. But the people who are taking care of our kids did notice because <laughs> they were not planning for them. One of which happens to be my wife. And so they were not planning for an extra 15 minutes of taking care of your kids because your kids are crazy. No offense. Um, but they're 
they're a handful. That's a phrase I've been using lately. They, they're a handful, all right? And so I promise it's going to be a little bit shorter today, all right? And a little bit lighter than it was last week as well. All right, so we're gonna get into Galatians chapter five. And, um, and for those of you that have missed and haven't, haven't been here, maybe it is your first week joining us for service. Um, he, Paul has been setting the stage for these Christians in Galatia. They're not Jewish people for the most part. They're Gentile people. They, they would have come out of um, paganism. They would have come out of believing in Greek gods, Roman gods, all of that. And, um, and they were a people that, were, that had, um, had migrated from um, Western Europe so the people called the Gauls, you may have heard of them, the Gauls, Celtic Gauls, Germ like the Germany-France border. That's where they started. They moved and uh, migrated to lots of different places, but one of the places they landed is in what is called Galatia, or the Roman province of Galatia. And so he's, he, Paul has come to them and he's told them the gospel that, that they're not saved by keeping the Jewish law. They're not saved by their works or their actions or being good enough or being moral or crossing some sort of imaginary line someone has drawn of morality but they are saved by the work of Jesus on the cross. So they put their faith in Jesus and they receive God's grace and that's all they have to do. And then in order to walk with him, they receive the spirit and they're supposed to walk in the spirit. They don't have to put themselves under the Old Testament law, not the Old Testament law that the Jews had. They don't have to put themselves under any new kind of law either. They're supposed to walk in freedom. So he taught them this and this is what we've been talking about. So he taught them this but then when he left, these people we now call Judaizers, they were, they were Jewish Christians, came in and tried to convince the Galatians that, that, that Paul didn't give them the whole story. And so, yes, they had to put their faith in Jesus for salvation, but then to maintain their salvation, to maintain their justification before God, they had to put themselves back under the law. Specifically, they had to get circumcised, and then they had to follow all the, or some of the law. And that wasn't true. And it broke Paul's heart that they were getting put back under a legalistic system like that. And we talked last week about what that does to somebody. So, um, so he, is, he is writing this letter to them to clear this up and to say, listen, don't, you, you can't trust these guys. You know me, you trust me, and you know that what I taught you was the truth. So don't fall for what, what they've told you, all right? So that's, that's what he's been doing with the entire letter. And we're um, now in the middle of chapter five, or toward the beginning of chapter five. Um, Galatians chapter five. And uh, we're going to start this week in verse 7. All right. You ran well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion does not come from him who calls you. So I love this because Paul uses a sports analogy. <laughs> and Paul uses sports analogies all the time. And I love that. Because if you've been around here any length of time, you know I love sports analogies too. I get accused of talking about football a little too much. And I, <laughs> I got an amen from Brenda. Yeah, 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 yeah. I talk about football a lot. Anyway, um, but that's like, that's the biggest sport in our country, I believe. You know, that's, that's, that's the biggest um, sport that we have. And so it makes sense. For Paul, and I'm not going to talk about football today, all right? No, I'm not going to talk about football. All right, so... <laughs> Paul is, he uses a running analogy. Now for them in their culture, they didn't have football, okay? Didn't, wasn't around yet. And uh, they would have, uh, obviously. But, um, but it wasn't around yet. One of the biggest sports for them, or the biggest sport for them, was running. That was it. You think about the Olympic Games, you, that's, that, that's how it all got started. 
And um, specifically, long distance running for them was the, the name of the game. I don't, I don't remember seeing a 100-meter dash in the original Olympics. It was, it was long distance running that that was their sport. And Paul uses this analogy of running and long distance running a lot. So he says, you ran well. So you got this. You were doing this right. You were thinking about this right when I was with you. He says, who hindered you? Um, and I don't know whether this is just like a rhetorical question or whether he actually doesn't know the name of the person who came in and do it. And he's asked, cause it's a letter. So he, he could be asking them, who is it? Give me a name. Yeah. He might be doing that. But the, but the word that he uses here is really interesting. When he uses the word hindered, it, it's, you know, again, it's one of these words that's a little difficult to translate into English, but the word means to cut off or to cut in. So he's saying you ran well. Who cut you off? Now, think about running. Think about long-distance running. If you watch the Olympics and you watch the, the long races that they do around the track, when the, when, the, uh, when the race starts, you have all the runners in their lanes and they're staggered, right? And for the first lap or two laps or whatever it may be, they all run in their lane. And when they're running in their lane, they are unhindered. They can run at whatever speed they want to run. They can run at whatever pace they choose to run. There's nothing encumbering them. They are running their race. But as soon as they finish up with the lap or whatever it is of running in their own lane, then they all converge in one of the straightaways into a, into a group, a pack or a peloton, or I don't know, whatever you want to call it. And so they converge into a group. Well, what happens when they all converge down into the group and they get out of those lanes? They hinder each other. You watch them. They're in there. They're throwing elbows. They're cutting people off. You've got people that are trying to change the pace of the race for everyone else who are in the front and running slower or faster and trying to pull people around. Everybody's trying to get into their position. They're elbowing and, and stepping on each other's ankle, all kinds of stuff to try and get in the right position so that when they finally do hit the, the final straightaway, they have their, their position that they want in order to get, you know, get their kick and to possibly win the race. As soon as they get out of those lanes, they start hindering each other. And this is what legalism does. This is a really interesting picture that Paul gives us, this sports analogy. As soon, to understand grace, it's like God has put you in a lane, and there's maybe a staggered start because we're all starting at different places, but he puts you in your lane, and he has a race that he wants you to run unhindered. Nobody else getting in our way, nobody else positioning, nobody else judging, nobody else doing anything. We are running our race but what legalism does is it puts us all on a pack where people are fighting for position. And so they start elbowing and they got a position. And he's saying, here's what, these, here's what these Judaizers did to you. You were running well, you were running your race, and then they got in there and they stepped in front of you. Now, why are they, why are they putting all these legalistic things in front of the Galatians? It's because, they, it's because legalism creates a hierarchy or a ladder or a structure. It creates pedestals. And so if I can come in to you and I can tell you, oh, there's a rule you didn't know about, or there's a bunch of rules that you didn't know about, I'm keeping them, and now you need to keep them. What I do to you is I put you in a position below me. I put myself on a self-righteous pedestal. I hinder you and keep you behind me, because if you're behind me, I have a better chance of winning the race. But that's not the way that we are supposed to think. Or that's not the way we're supposed to process this as believers. We are supposed to run well, run unhindered, run the race that he has laid out for us. Not hindered by anyone else and certainly not hindering anyone else. So it's a really cool um, 
Really cool analogy. I also thought of the analogy. Now, he gives the racing analogy. Um, and I'm, again, I'm not going to talk about football, I don't think. But, but I thought about traffic because this is another one of my pet peeves. All right. Can we talk about the zipper merge for a second? Do you know what the zipper merge is? Raise your hand if you know what the zipper merge is. Okay, great. Any, all of you that didn't raise your hand, you are the problem. I know Michael agrees. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right? So, so this, here's the zipper merge. And you're going to get education on this today. That's good. Um, so you're on the highway, right? Two, three lanes, whatever it is. And the, hi- and, the, and the highway goes down to one lane for no explicable reason. There are traffic cones, but there's no work being done. But nevertheless, they have decided that they are going to take the lane down to one from, the, from two. Let's just say two right? The proper thing to do in that situation is to zipper merge. It is one car lets the other car in front of it, and then they go, and then the next car, and then the next car. You go, you go back and forth between lanes. It's the most efficient way to do it. It's the most efficient way to merge from two lanes down to one lane, and then once you're in your lane, you stay in your lane, and you merge as you are supposed to with the car ahead of you, okay? So that's, that's how the zipper merge works. That's what we're supposed to do. It is the right thing to do. Hear me. But it never fails. Your zipper, listen, everybody knows. There, it, is, it is putting the other cars, it's putting the overall traffic flow ahead of yourself and your speed. And you're, actually, you're gonna merge properly, right? So you merge properly. But then there's always that one person. They see that open, Stephen, is that you? You and Michael can talk about that later. You, you see that open lane in front of you? And you're like, ooh, I can make some time. And so you zip all the way up that other lane. So this is you, some of you. Now, I'm not shaming you. I'm not judging you. Just cut it out, all right? (laughs) Shoots up the other lane and then tries to merge in at the last second, right? Why do I do that? Because the time that I'm making and where I'm going is more important than all of these other people. And so I'm going to try and get ahead. And so you merge. And then it creates all kinds of problems. Now people are breaking. Now all kinds of issues are happening. The right thing to do is to consider the group over ourselves and to, to merge in. Not to hinder one another, but to work together. To work together, not to hinder one another. I don't know why I thought of that analogy. Maybe I just wanted to rant. Anyway, he says, you ran well. You ran well. Who hindered you? Who got in your way? Who elbowed you out of the way? Who pushed you out of the way? Who cut you off? No, no, no. What they're telling you does not come from God. And he's already made that point really clearly in the first part of the letter. He said, you got to be so careful about this. Watch out for it. Verse 9. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. Now, this would have been a very common phrase that they would have used. It's a common analogy throughout all of Scripture. Leaven, or, you know, think of yeast, leavening agent. Um, Leaven was commonly used as an analogy for corruption. So leaven would be corrupting. You go all the way back to, is, uh, to Israel in Egypt, and when God delivers them out of Egypt on the very first Passover, they were to remove all of the leaven out of their house. They couldn't have any yeast, any leaven at all in their house, and they had to eat unleavened bread. It was symbolic of purification. And so, and so this idea carries through, it carries through the nation of Israel. It's used multiple times in Scripture, throughout Scripture. And then Jesus also uses this analogy when he's teaching. And he says, and it's recorded in Matthew and it's recorded in Mark. Jesus says, beware the leaven of the Pharisees. That's what he says in Mark, or in Matthew. 
And in Mark, he says, beware the leaven of the Pharisees and of Herod. So there's two there. So what, what is he talking about? What does it have to do with this leaven that Paul is talking about here? He said, be, Jesus said, beware the leaven of the Pharisees. What is he talking about? He's talking about the legalism and the hypocrisy that the Pharisees were standing on self-righteously and were imposing on the people. Beware their arrogance. Beware their pride. Beware this idea of ladder climbing and positioning and elbowing people out of the way. Beware religious or legalistic leaven. And then Jesus also says, beware the leaven of Herod in Mark. So what's that leaven? That leaven is the leaven of worldliness and sin. Beware the corruption that comes from legalism and beware the corruption that comes from sin. Beware the corruption that comes from the inside and beware the corruption that comes from the outside. It's two things. And I think this is so important. And as I was, as I was looking through this and studying it this week, I saw it everywhere in scripture. Everywhere in scripture. Beware legalism, the leaven of legalism, and beware the leaven of license. What, what, so, so this, is, this is everywhere, and we've been talking about it over and over and over again. So, so what's Paul talking about in Galatians? He's talking about the leaven that would equate to the leaven of the Pharisees. He's talking about the leaven of, of legalism. In 1 Corinthians 5, when Paul's writing to the Corinthian church, he also talks about leaven. But in that case, the leaven is the leaven of sexual immorality in their church. So when he uses it there, he's talking about the leaven of worldliness and sin from the, from the outside from the flesh. So you see these two sort of bookends that we always have to be careful of. How do we beware the leaven of the Pharisees, the leaven of legalism, and the leaven of Herod, or the, le the leaven of worldliness and sin in the flesh at the same time? We do it exactly the same way that Jesus did it. When John, who's Jesus' best friend, when, when John writes his gospel and he introduces Jesus at the beginning of his gospel, he says that the word came and the word was full of grace and truth. Grace and truth. Not 50% grace and 50% truth. Not, not a balance of the two. All grace and all truth all the time. How do we beware the leaven of worldliness and sin? With the truth. Amen. That's how we beware the leaven of, of sinfulness and worldliness, with the truth. We look at Scripture and we know what God's will is. We know how he wants us to live. We know how he doesn't want us to live. We know what is sin and what is not sin. And so we, we submit ourselves to the truth. And when we submit ourselves and our lifestyle and all of that to the truth, we can beware the leaven of Herod or the leaven of the world. And an example of that is sexual immorality in the Corinthian church. But at the same time that we are to be full of truth, we are also to be full of grace. We are also to be full, a full measure of grace. How do we beware the leaven of legalism and law-based living? Grace is how we do that. And so we need to be the full measure of both and always be aware of that as believers. Otherwise, we will find ourselves sliding to one side or the other. Being all grace with no truth will push us into worldliness. Being all truth and no grace will push us into legalism. 
And so we have to be a full measure of both all at the same time. And that's what we need to ask God to be growing and building in our life so that we are uh, full of both. Truth rejects worldly leaven. Grace rejects religious leaven. So what does this mean? It means I don't condone sin because of the truth, but it also means that I don't condemn sin because of grace. This is everywhere. And, And this is one of the things that I love about studying scripture is that when you open yourself up to what the word of God actually says, instead of bringing our own ideas or preconceptions to scripture, we just open scripture and say, what do you want to tell us? What do you want to teach us? And we start learning good biblical theology and doctrine. What we end up finding is that everything works together. And that the things that we are learning are everywhere in scripture. And we find less and less places in scripture where it looks like there's contrast or disagreement between scriptures. Because we start to have this really good foundation of understanding of who God is and what he wants for us and what his desire is for our life. And then when we read scripture, all of a sudden things that didn't make sense before make sense now. All of a sudden it's drawing our mind to this other thing over here and this other thing over here and saying, oh, this says this everywhere. This, this concept of, of, of truth and grace shown to us in perfect example in Jesus is everywhere in scripture. It's all over the place. And when we start seeing those things, it starts opening our mind and our hearts to what Scripture has to say as we start to learn more and more about what God's will is for our life. And that's really cool. And and, and that's why why the little things matter and why it's important for us to try and really get this foundation set solid. Because the little things matter. The little things matter. And and the little things, especially on, on foundational things, we talk about this building, right? If you start a, a building and it, the foundation is one degree off of level, that's not too big a deal if you go one story up or two stories up. That's not a big deal. But if you're building a skyscraper and you take one degree off at the base, then when you get to the top, that thing's the Leaning Tower of Pisa, you know? <laughs> like, you got a real problem the further down you go. That's why it's so important for us to talk about the basics, the essentials, and make sure that we have them right. And then as we read through Scripture, everything starts making so much more sense and working together. So this is everywhere. Truth and grace, it's everywhere. He said, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. So be very careful of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. All right? He, now, verse 10. I have confidence in you. I have confidence in you, in the Lord, that's very important, in the Lord, that you will have no other mind, but he who troubles you shall bear his judgment, whoever he is. <laughs> I think that's a little bit of a little shot to whoever it is that's coming and been talking to them, whoever that guy is, I don't know. But he, he, this is really cool because earlier in the, in the letter, he said, I'm concerned for you. And now he says, I have confidence in you. Which is it? It's both. If you're a parent, you know this. If you're a parent who has been working on building character into your child, and especially, particularly as they get older, they get into more and more independent situations, and you send them off into that situation, and in your head you're like, I'm concerned for you <laughs> and the decisions you might make in this scenario. But what you say to your child, maybe, this is what we try to say to our child is, I know you're going to make great decisions. I trust you. I have confidence in you. Right? And you hope, and in your mind, but in your mind, you're like, but I'm not 100% sure, but I'm pretty sure, (laughs) right? So I think that's a little bit of what's going on. And he says, I have confidence in you in the Lord. Meaning if you're truly pursuing God and you really want to know him, you're going to come to this same conclusion. And then you're not going to let this person, and they'll, 
what's coming to them, the consequence of their sin and deception, that, that'll come to them. And that's, that's, you don't have to worry about that. It's going to happen. But he's saying, I have confidence in you, in the Lord, that you'll have no other mind. And, and I just say for, for me, for my family, for you, I have confidence that we will have no other mind but this, that we will stand in grace and we will walk in grace together and figure out how that plays out in our lives. All right. Um, so uh, verse 11. And I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why do I still suffer persecution? Then the offense of the cross has ceased. Basically, he's, he's, he's just saying, listen, I, I, I don't teach people to be circumcised. He might have been accused of that, um, or maybe even the Judaizers said, well, Paul actually really does believe in circumcision. Um, and he did encourage Timothy to get circumcised, but that was for a strategic ministry purpose, and that was up to Timothy to decide what he wanted to do. Um, but Paul might have been accused of teaching that people had to get circumcised. And he said, no, if that were true, then the Jews wouldn't be giving me such a hard time. And these Jewish Christians, these Judaizers wouldn't be persecuting me either. So no, I, I don't teach that. I don't teach that. And if, and if I taught that, the offense of the cross has ceased. Now that's kind of a weird phrase. So what does he mean? How is the cross offensive? The cross is offensive because what it declares is that no one is made righteous by their own works. And that offends our sense of justice. It offends our sense of fairness. It offends our sense of reward and consequences. It certainly offends the Jews at the time who had built their entire life on the law and on their behavior and on their ability to keep all these standards. It offends all of that. The, um, I, was, I, was, I was reading, I read a, a passage from uh, J. Vernon McGee that I just thought was, was, hit this right on the nose. It said, actually, the cross of Christ is an offense to all that man prides himself in. It is an offense to his morality because it tells him his work cannot justify him. It's an offense to his philosophy because it's an appeal to faith and not to reason. It's an offense to the culture of man because its truths are revealed to babes. It's an offense to his sense of caste because God chooses the poor and the humble. It's an offense to his will because it calls for unconditional surrender. It's an offense to his pride because it shows the exceeding sinfulness of the human heart. And it's an offense to himself because it tells him he must be born again. And so Paul says, hey, listen, if I just relented and went back to the old thing and I, was, and I wasn't facing persecution for all of this, then the point of the cross would be missed. Because the point of the cross is that we can't be good enough. The point of the cross is that we can't save ourselves. And so we need a savior and we come helpless to him. And that's offensive to our sense of morality or our sense of justice or our sense of self-righteousness or achievement or morality or whatever it may be. And so he said, no, that, that hasn't happened. I, I don't preach circumcision. I don't preach that you have to go under the law because I believe that the cross was enough. Right, he says, um, verse uh, 12, I could wish that those who trouble you would even cut themselves off. Now, Paul's getting fired up. Okay, And Paul gets fired up when he's writing letters. He is getting fired up and he's saying, He's saying, I wish these people who are troubling you, I wish they would go so far as to cut themselves off. That's how he feels about them. 
he's, you can imagine, it's like somebody, it's, you, you pour into your child and you pour in morality and you try and teach them and you try to, you try to you know, instill in them all that you want to instill in them and then they go off and then they're influenced by somebody else who doesn't care about them, who isn't thinking about their best interests and they start corrupting the way your child thinks about things. Like, that'll make you mad. <laughs> that'll upset you. Your protective instinct will kick in. And so Paul is very upset with them. What, what is he saying? It's really, actually, it's kind of interesting what he's saying. <laughs> Because the word he uses is the word amputate. He says, I wish they would amputate themselves. There, are, there is debate over what he means by this. You're starting to snicker, so maybe you know what I'm saying. So there are some who say, when he says, I wish they would just amputate themselves, there are some who say, in fact, most commentators I read this week said this, that what he means is they're trying to get you to be circumcised. I wish they would go all the way. Okay, now most commentators think that's what Paul is saying. I don't tend to think so only because I don't think there's a reason to think that other than just general snarkiness and, you know, and anger at these people. I don't, there's, there's nothing here to me in the context that, that tells you that's what he's saying. But I felt like I needed to say it because if you go research it, you're, you might find somebody that says that. Um, in fact, you probably will. What does it mean? Is he talking about a physical amputation or is he talking about removing themselves, amputating themselves from the fellowship? That, I think that's more likely what he's talking about. I wish they would just remove themselves from the race. Just get out of the lane. Get out of the way. Get, get out of this church. Stop influencing people this way. Amputate. Just get the leaven out of the house. You know, the, these are the analogies that he's been using. And so I think it's more likely that's, that's what he's saying. That, that these people's influence needs to cease it needs to stop. They need to be cut off. They need to stop deceiving people and, 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 and twisting them up in this. And this is one of the things that, that I want everybody to talk about in group this week when you get together. There's a couple of questions that will surround this idea of, are there people in your life that are having this kind of influence on you? Now, that could be leaven from the, the religious side. It could be leaven from the, 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 uh, the sin side. Um, are there people that are having this influence and what does it look like for you to not let them influence you anymore? What does that influence dynamic look like? Are there relationships that I need to just be away from because they're, they're corrupting my view of God and who he is and who I am and what I'm supposed to do? Um, or more likely, are there relationships where I need to change the stream of influence, where the, the relationship needs to stay, but I need to change the flow of influence in this relationship? How do I cut this influence off? And that's one of the things that you're going to talk about in your groups this, way, this week. He doesn't want this influence there with them anymore. He said, I just wish they would cut themselves off, would amputate themselves. All right, verse 13. For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. You have been called to liberty. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, beware lest you be consumed by one another. Bite and devour one another. This is the elbowing, it's the cutting off, it's the positioning, it's the the legalistic scramble to get to the top of the morality pyramid or whatever. He's saying, if you bite and devour each other, you just, you'll just eat each other up. You'll eat each other alive. I don't think we have to look very far to know that that happens. And it happened. It's happened. It's happening. And it will happen. 
Don't do that. He says, no, the, the law is fulfilled in this. Love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said, uh, they asked him what the greatest commandment was. Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. The, in, the indication for Jesus, these are the same thing. They, they go hand in hand. They happen at the same time, and they are together. They are equal with one another. Not law number one and law number two, but law 1A, 1B, or law number one and law number one, Okay. Love your neighbor as yourself is the same as loving God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength will cause you to love your neighbor as yourself. They go together. And so he said, it's all wrapped up in that one thing. All right, don't use, don't use your freedom. Okay, you're free in Christ. You've been set free by the grace of God, right? And you are not judged, you're, God's love for you is not judged by your behavior and your salvation is not determined by your behavior. Not the day you got saved and not today either. It is by the grace of God. So you are free. You have liberty. But don't use that liberty as an opportunity for the flesh. Now, generally speaking, this verse is often used to say, well, don't, in that freedom, go sin, because you could just go sin. And he's definitely saying that. That's a a broad application. But the more direct application of what he's saying in in this very moment to them is, don't use your liberty as an opportunity for selfishness. What's happened is I have become a child of God by the grace of God. And I have brothers and sisters in Christ around me. And my responsibility now is to consider God and to consider others greater than myself. My responsibility now is to realize that I'm a part of a team. I am part, I am part of a family. And the family is greater than the individual. Okay? The flow of traffic is more important than the one person who do, doesn't know how to zipper merch, right? My, my responsibility is to consider others and in humility to serve them. And in so doing, to fulfill the law of God and in so doing, become the person that he's designing me to be. He has designed me to be. Legalism turns people into Christian cannibals where we just avoid Christian cannibals who just eat other people alive because somehow that makes me stronger, right? I will demean you, I will judge you, I will push you down because that pushes me up. That's, that's cannibalism. He said, avoid Christian cannibals. That mentality, this, and this is the difference. This is the difference in fellowship. This is the difference in the fellowship that you and I have with God and it's the difference in the fellowship we have with other people whether that's in a marriage or children to parents or, or, or friendships that we have, relationships that we have in the church, this is the difference between having fellowship and not having fellowship. Who am I serving? Why does this relationship exist? If my view is that God exists to serve me, I will not live in fellowship with him. That's what legalism does. That's, that's what law-based living does. It's that God serves me. I'm going to do these things, and so then God owes me this. He serves me. That will not lead me into fellowship with God. If, if my view of other people, my spouse, my friends, my coworkers, if my view of other people is that they exist to serve me, I will not live in fellowship with them. That's what legalism does. We're evaluated for a prize, and that makes us competitors. And if you're not giving me everything that I want, then we aren't in fellowship. It destroys the fellowship. If 
this, this is one of the absolute keys to a successful marriage and a God-honoring marriage. If your view is that your spouse exists to serve you, your marriage will slowly or quickly crumble. Amen. Okay? You can't have fellowship that way. We were not set free to obey a religion or to be served. We were set free to serve in love. This is what the call is. If my view of God is that I exist to serve him, now I can live in fellowship with him. This is what the gospel does. God owes me nothing. He has already given me everything. And so I am free to love him and to serve him and to give my life for him. If this is my view of people, if my view of people is that I exist to serve them, then I can live in fellowship with them. I expect nothing from them. I expect nothing of them, but I give them everything that I have. That is where fellowship happens. That's where love, that's where bonds are created. That's where trust is created. And they never let me down because I never expect anything of them. I exist to serve them. This is what the gospel does. We are all saved by grace, and that makes us partners. It makes us partners, not competitors. God doesn't want you to be consumed. He wants you to produce. And we produce when we are choosing to serve in love, serving him and serving other people. That's when we see the product. That's when we see the produce. We build our life on facts. We walk in faith. And then we see the fruit. And that happens, not under legalism, but in truth and grace and the gospel. Be careful of this. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. And so we may need to identify influence sources that are pushing us to one of these two things and make decisions based on that. But ultimately, we may need to make the decision to love God with all our heart, soul, and mind, and strength by loving our neighbor as ourself and choosing to realize that our life is a life of service, of giving, not a life of being served and receiving. We've already been given everything. And so now we give back to him. Commit yourself to serving and loving. This is a mental shift for some. But this helps us to do the four things that are so important to us as a church, the four things that we feel like if we do, if we do these things well, that we can truly be who God created us to be. And that's to know God, to know who he really is as our loving father. Know God, find hope and real hope, not fake hope. Not the fake hope that the world gives us of of stuff now here. To live free. Not under, not under a yoke of bondage, not under a religious legalistic system, but to live free and then to do real good. Do good that helps us and other people to know God Amen. and to find hope and to live free and to do good that helps people to know God, find hope, live free and do good. It's the cycle that we want to see in our life. And so today I, I want to commit myself to that. I ask you to commit yourself to that. And to say, I am here to serve in love in the liberty that I have. All right, let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for your love. And we look forward to the day, Christ, when you will return and you will reign. And in the meantime, we live in a world where there, we have pressures coming from all around us, influences trying to teach us and tell us about what's right or wrong or how to live or not live. And ultimately, God, you designed us, you created us. And so we want you to tell us what that is. We want you to tell us what your will is.
And so we look to the scripture, we look to your truth so that we can understand who we are and who you are, how we're made right before you. And so, Father, we we submit ourselves to you today willingly, knowing that we are your children, not, not by our effort, not by our work, but through faith. You have given us your grace. Christ, you gave your life on the cross as a substitute in our place. Your blood spilled on our behalf. You gave your life, you're placed in the tomb, and on the third day you rose again. And we know that salvation is found nowhere else in no one else. That you are the way, the truth, and the life. That there's no religious system No religious system ever created that could make us right before God. And knowing that, you gave your life and offered salvation to anyone who would humbly come to the foot of the cross, recognize that they can't save themselves, and trust you. And so, God, I pray that someone would do that today for the first time. They never realized that before. They never saw that before. They thought they had to do something. They thought they had to work for it. They thought they had to be right. They thought they had to have things worked out in their life. And they don't. All they have to do is stand at the foot of the cross and say, Jesus, I trust you and I believe. And God, as we walk through life, we know that it's not our works that hold that in place or secure it. We know that It's not our level of morality that earns your love or your acceptance. And so, but we know that when we choose to live outside of your will, whether that's the the leaven of the Pharisees or the leaven of the world, when we choose to live outside of what you've designed for us, when we sin, when we inevitably continue to fall short of your glory, we know that has a tremendous impact. It has an impact on our relationship with you. It has an impact on us in our life. The consequences of sin are great and huge. And we don't want to live that way. And so we know that we have freedom, but we don't want to use that freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Not as an opportunity to build ourselves up self-righteously and not as an opportunity to go and sin freely. We're not going to look into the face of your love and look into grace and act that way or think that way or behave that way. We're going we're gonna to walk in truth and grace at the same time. We are going to try to walk in purity and holiness to try to pursue the image of Christ as you transform us from the inside out through the power of the Spirit. We are going to walk with you freely. We are going to pursue you in the liberty that we have. And so, God, I pray that you would help us to see, all of us specifically today, to see where leaven, where influence, where corruption has come into our heart, into our mind, into our life, has twisted us up, and to not seeing you correctly, not seeing ourselves correctly, not seeing other people correctly, and that you would straighten that out. You would fill us with truth, 
commitment to truth. You'd fill us with grace, commitment to grace, so that we can walk in this life the way that Christ walked in this life. That we could walk in purity, that we could walk in holiness. And that we could prepare for the day, Jesus, when you return to establish your kingdom. And we finally get to not only walk with you, but walk in a world that celebrates the things that you celebrate, that recognizes the things you recognize, that believes the things that you believe, that teaches the things that you teach, so that we can walk fully in who you've created us to be. And we look forward to that day. So Father, I ask that you continue to do the the work of purifying us. You show us where that corruption has come in and show us the path that we need to take in order to set that straight, set that right in the freedom that we have in you, that you would truly set us free. It's in your name we pray. Amen.